A special thanks to Wayne Baxter. Uh, Wayne's come today. Uh, he's a professor at Heritage. He's been there for eight years. He teaches New Testament. Um, he was also the pastor at three churches before that, and he has three sons. And Wayne, if I got any of that wrong, it's Sam McCallum's fault. Uh, so please feel free to correct any of that. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your family. And uh, thank you for coming today. Welcome to Crestwick. Good morning. I, I hope all of that was accurate because I'm the one who gave it to, uh, oops, to uh, Sam. So that would be really a, a shame if I missed out on that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's good to be with you. This is my first time uh, here at your church. And uh, maybe depending upon how this morning goes, might be my last time. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it's good to be with you. And it's been an, an unusual year to say the least. Uh, at Heritage, um, with everything going virtual and social distance classes and all that, and online. But, uh, but God has been blessing us. Um, you know, our, our numbers for this year have uh, actually, a lot of schools have taken a dip naturally, but ours are actually uh, still quite strong, our numbers. Um, so we're grateful. We know God's hand is upon us for that. So about uh, 30 years ago, something happened in the sports world that was truly amazing. It was truly one for, uh, for the ages. Uh, a pitcher by the name of Oral Hirschheiser was bearing down on what was a 20-year-old record for the most consecutive scoreless innings pitched. The record was held by L.A. Dodger Hall of Famer uh, Don Drysdale, and it was 58 consecutive scoreless innings pitched. So to kind of put that into perspective, it would be like a, a pitcher heading into the All-Star break at 8-0 with an earned run average of 0.00. So, um, tremendous record. And Hirschheiser was having a season for the ages, and he was, he was bearing down on this record. And deep into the season, in his last regular season start, uh, in the end of August, he takes to the mound, the Dodgers do, against the San Diego Padres. And so he is pitching another gem, inning after inning after inning after inning. The Dodgers can't score a run off this guy. Now, sadly for the Dodgers, they weren't able to score run off the Padre pitcher. So it comes to the ninth inning. Hirschheiser takes to the mound. And he retires the slide. And the crowd goes wild. They go to their feet and they give him a standing ovation because he has just tied this 20-year-old record. And so Hirschheiser tips his hat to the crowd. And then he jogs back into the dugout, sits down. And he turns to his manager, Tommy Lasorda, and says, okay, coach, I'm done. And Lasorda is like, what are you talking about? It's 0-0. Zero, zero. Tenth inning is coming up. We need you. We need this game. Did you hurt your shoulder? Like, no, no, my shoulder's fine. Like, your wrist, your hamstring? Like, what's going on? Because the game's still in the balance, and we need this. And Hirschheiser, who's a born-again Christian, looked at his manager and said, you know what, coach? If I, if I go out there, and if I pitch another scoreless inning, then I'm going to break Don Drysdale's record. And who am I to break Mr. Drysdale's record? Well, Tommy Lasorda, who's a bit of a hothead, had a bit of a conniption fit and told him, you're going out there if we have to drag you by the hair and pull you out there and like move your arm like this. And the rest of the team got behind him. And so Hirschheiser reluctantly took to the mound for the 10th inning. And he pitched another scoreless inning. And 30 years later, that record still stands. Now, what I find amazing about that record isn't the record itself, although that's a tremendous record, but his attitude 
His attitude in breaking that record. Like, think about that. Like, who am I? Like, who am I to break this record? I'm a nobody. Like, could you imagine if somebody like, I don't know, Sidney Crosby, Sid the Kid, comes into the final game, the 82nd game of, of, a, of a hockey season at 92 goals, tied with Wayne Gretzky's record, 92 goals, and Sidney Crosby tells his coach, you know what, I'll play, but I'm not going to take any shots on goal. Because who am I to break wing? Are you? If he had to take 30 shots that game, he would do it in order to break that record. Like, who am I? Like, the thing is, is that really, that attitude cuts across human nature. It really does. Because, because we want to be number one. Right? Like, we want to be number one. And in this day and age of social media, it's not just enough that we are number one, but we want to show everybody else, hey, I'm number one. But here's the problem with that. The problem is we were never created to be number one. We were created simply to show everybody else, the entire universe, the entire cosmos, who is number one, and it's Jesus. And I think that's the point of our text that I want to take you to this morning. Turn with me or swipe with me to Colossians chapter 1. In this little paragraph we want to look at, the basic idea of this paragraph in Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is basically this, that Jesus Christ must have first place in our lives. That's kind of the bottom line. Jesus Christ must have first place in our lives. So let me read Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, and then, and then we'll pray. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we pause in your presence uh, to acknowledge your lordship, your kingship, not simply over our lives individually, over this congregation, corporately, but over uh, not simply the universal church, but over this world and over this universe. You are king. You are the Lord. And so we, we bow our hearts before you, humbly asking that you would speak specifically through this word as it is preached according to each person's need as you see it, Lord. Speak, for we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to the text, let me give you a few things by way of context. So Paul, by way of brief reminder, remember, Paul, wasn't, Paul didn't grow up in the church, right? Like many of us here have grown up in the church. I never grew up in the church, but many of you here have grown up in the church. Paul grew up in the Jewish synagogue, not in the Christian church, which meant, and if you read Acts in his own story, He hated the church. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. So he invested his life seeking out Christians to arrest them, to put them in prison, to kill them, have them executed. 
Right? So in that way, he would find a kindred spirit with the members of ISIS and Boko Haram, that kind of thing. But Christ appears to Paul and Paul becomes this convert and this major player in the history of the church. And he goes out evangelizing and planting all kinds of churches and writing most of the New Testament. So this particular letter to the Colossians, which was a predominantly Gentile church, Paul didn't plant this church. In fact, he'd never been to this church, right? Most of the letters he writes, most of them, not all, but most are churches that he's been to, that he started. They know him personally. He knows them. This one was different. He'd never been to this church, uh, but he's heard of this church, right? Their reputation precedes them, that they have a reputation for fruitfulness and faithfulness and hospitality. And Paul says that. And so Paul says, I thank God for you guys because of your reputation in, the communi- in your community. And then his, his expression of giving thanks for them leads him into a prayer, which is verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, which then leads him into this section, this paragraph 15 through 20, which Pauline scholars say, recognize that it's a hymn. It's, a, it's an early Christian hymn, an early Christian song. Now, why do they say that? Because um, from 1.1 to 1.14 of Colossians, it's all prose. And then from 1.21 to the rest of the book, it's all prose. But this little paragraph is poetry. You can't see it in your English, but it's clear in the Greek. It's poetry. It's a poem. And whereas we moderns, we recite our poetry, they would sing their poetry. So this is an early Christian song that was circulating in the church that Paul has here. And this song, I want to show you, it kind of breaks down into two stanzas, right? And the point of the first stanza is this, that Jesus must have first place because he's supreme in creation, right? Jesus Christ must have first place in your life and in your life and in my life because he is supreme in creation. And the song shows us how it is that Jesus is supreme in creation, For starters, Jesus is supreme in creation because he is God. Look at the first part of verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will seize upon that verse and say, See, it doesn't say that the Son is the invisible God. It merely says that he's the image of the invisible God. The problem with that uh, interpretation, besides being wrong, is that it doesn't take into account the social historical context of what that meant at that time. So this morning, and and the beautiful thing about us now, like in the Christian life, uh, today in particularly, and even then for Christians, is that the minute you open your eyes, you can begin to bless God. You can begin to worship God. You don't have to do anything. Just open your eyes and begin to bless God and thank God. But if you were like a worshiper of Diana or Apollos, not Apollos, but Apollo or Jupiter, that's not how you worship them. If you wanted to worship Jupiter, you have to put on your cloak, go down to the the town square to the shrine of Jupiter, and then you'd go into that shrine of Jupiter, and then there's this statue, this icon of Jupiter, and then you'd burn incense to that icon of Jupiter, and you'd say prayers to that icon of Jupiter. And as you worship that icon of Jupiter, you are worshiping Jupiter. The Greek word here for image is icon. 
Right? Jesus is the icon of God. He is the physical expression of the invisible God. I love how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Or as John puts it in his gospel, in those opening lines, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is supreme in creation because he is God. Secondly, Jesus is supreme in creation because he's the firstborn. Look at the back half of verse 15. It says that he's the firstborn over all creation. So again, Jehovah's Witnesses will seize upon that and say, see, Jesus is the firstborn, meaning he's the first one born, meaning he's the first one created, right? Jehovah God creates Jesus, and then Jesus creates everything else. But again, you have to understand firstborn in his biblical theological context. So uh, firstborn, Psalm 89 gives you a wonderful little uh, illustration uh, of, of what firstborn means theologically, biblically. So God, speaking through the psalmist, says, I will appoint David to be my firstborn. And then he explains exactly what he means right after that. My firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. David was not the first king, but he was, in God's eyes, the firstborn king, right? The most exalted of the kings of the earth. See, that's what firstborn is getting at here. That's why, for example, in verse 18, if you just pop down to Colossians 1.18, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Was he the first one raised from the dead? No. Elijah raised people. Elisha raised people. Jesus raised Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son. However, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, meaning the, the most exalted person ever raised from the dead. He's the firstborn. And he's the firstborn because he is the creator. Look at the first part of verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Right? Jesus was the agent of creation. God the Son was the agent of creation. As John's gospel put it, that, that nothing has come into existence apart from him. And everything that has come into existence has come into existence through the word, through Jesus, the firstborn. And he created all things, the visible things that we can see, Right? Mountains, skies, stars, clouds. But he also creates the invisible, according to, to the text, the invisible realm, which he's referring to angels. Right? Jesus created the angels, which would have struck a chord with the Colossians, because if you keep reading Colossians, one of the heresies that starts to infect this church is angel worship. Right? So people are being tempted to worship angels. And we'll hear in the song, like, why? Like, Jesus is the one who created angels, so why would you worship a creature? like an angel. So Jesus is supreme in creation because he's the firstborn, but also he's supreme in creation because he's the goal of creation. He's the goal of creation. Look at the last part of verse 16, that all things have been created through him and for him, for him, for Jesus. You see, apart from God, it's, it's hard to make sense of life Especially when things are falling apart, right? When things aren't going the way you planned. It's hard to make sense of God in those, uh, sense of life in those times apart from God. Like if a loved one dies suddenly, like how do you make sense of that? Or if a, a really precious relationship is now broken. Or if you're uh, struggling through infertility issues. 
or joblessness. Like, how do you make sense of that? You can't apart from God. Someone wrote these words, in my sleep, pain drop, pain falls drop by drop upon my heart until in my agony, the grace of God is revealed. You see, the revelation of Jesus and his glory, that's the goal of creation, right? That's the goal of creation, the revelation, the revelation of Jesus and his glory, right? Like creation, think of creation like this, The creation is this puzzle, right? It's this massive, massive puzzle that's comprised of a gazillion pieces, right? Like creation past, right? Going all the way back to the garden, all the way present and future, right? Gazillions and gazillions of puzzle pieces. And we're just trying to put together the puzzle pieces in our own life. And we can't hardly get those together. We've got the corner pieces and some other stuff, but Everything. We're just trying to struggle with our own puzzle pieces, let alone the person next to you or in front of you or behind you. And only God knows where all those puzzle pieces go. And when all those gazillions and gazillions of puzzle pieces go in their spot, they reveal Jesus and the glory of Jesus. He's the goal of creation. And he is supreme in creation because he is the sustainer. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Now, many of the founding fathers in the U.S., they were deists. Some of them were Christian, but Jefferson and Franklin and others, they were deists. So what's a deist? A deist believes that there is one God, one transcendent God, and that God creates the world. But he creates the world such that the world can now run itself. So this transcendent God, having created the world with the capacity to run itself upon creation, takes off, never to be seen from again, because the world runs itself. That's deism. But Paul will have none of that. He says what Jesus creates, he sustains. Or as Hebrews puts it, Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. So why should Jesus have first place in your life and in your life and in my life? Because he is supreme in creation. That's the first stanza. And the second is like unto it. Jesus must have first place in our lives because he's supreme in salvation, redemption, right? He is supreme in salvation. And there's three evidences of his supremacy in salvation according to this passage. First... Jesus is supreme in salvation because he is the ultimate authority in the church. Look at the first part of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Right, so he is the head of the body, Jesus. The head of the, the universal body, the church of all times, past, present, future, from every nation, every tribe. He's the head of that universal body. But he's also the head of, of the local body. Right? So, so Crestwick has a different senior pastor than Temple, where we're members. But we have the same head. It's Jesus. And eventually, you're going to need to find a new pastor. That's just 
what happens in the life of the church and so will temple, but we'll never be without a head because Jesus is the head. He's the permanent head. He's the head of the universal body. He's the head of the local body. He's the head of the church. He's the the founder of the church. That's what beginning here in the NIV means. The beginning means he's the founder. He's the one who started the church. He's the founder of the church, right? Fruit-bearing churches don't start themselves, Right? God, through his Holy Spirit, moves upon people and brings them together, and the work starts from there. It's initiated and carried out through God. Right? Jesus told Peter, you're Peter, and upon this rock, you're going to build my church. Actually, he didn't say that. He said, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I am going to build my church. He's the founder of the church. Jesus is also the goal of the church. Look at the rest of verse 18. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. The New American Standard translates that more literally, first place. So that in everything he might have first place. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus the goal of this church, Questwick Baptist Church? Is he the goal? And we can break that down a little bit more. Think of whatever ministry you're involved in and hopefully Unless you're brand new, you're involved in some sort of ministry. Is Jesus the goal of your ministry? Right? If if you're an usher and a greeter, like, is Jesus the goal as you serve as an usher, as a greeter? If you're a teller or on the facilities committee or business committee, is Jesus the goal of what you do? Worship, teaching, leading children, is Jesus the goal? Is he the goal? He's the goal of the church. Second reason why Jesus is supreme in salvation is because he has all the fullness of God. He has all the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So verse 19 is a restatement of Jesus' deity, which we saw in verse 15. But there's a different emphasis here in verse 19. The emphasis here is on the permanence of Jesus' deity. Jesus He always was God, he is God, he will always be God. Because there's some groups at that time, and even today, who didn't believe that. Like some groups believe that, well, yeah, Jesus is God, but the minute he was born and became a baby and lived this human life, well, he stopped being God. And then there's some who say, nah, he was never a God. But when he was raised from the dead, he became a God. Paul will have none of that. Jesus always was God. He is God. He will always be God. He has all the fullness of God. And third and finally, why Jesus is supreme in salvation is because he reconciled creation to himself. Jesus is supreme in salvation because he recognized, he reconciled creation to himself. Look at the last verse, verse 20. And through him... Right, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus' reconciliation presupposes some really, really bad news. The bad news is that sinners, humanity, we're rebels. Right? From inception, we are rebels. Rebels in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our words, Rebelling against God and his divine standard and his divine majesty. We're rebels. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
That's bad news. But that's not the worst news. The worst news is that there's absolutely nothing we can do to fix that situation. Nothing. And the wages of sin is death, is eternal separation from God. But then there's good news, right? Good news is that Jesus did everything that was necessary and needed to bridge that chasm, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that he could make peace with God through his blood shed on the cross. So years ago when I was in seminary, I went to seminary uh, in Trinity Divinity School, which is in the North Shore of Chicago, and... Um, made a lot of friends there. And, and one friend in particular, he was from Southern California, uh, from Pasadena specifically. And so I'm a Windsorite guy, so I'm from Windsor. So after seminary, I, I started pastoring in Windsor. And uh, Jeff, my buddy, he uh, calls me and says, hey, you know what? You got any holidays coming? I say, yeah. And he says, why don't you come visit me in Southern California, Pasadena? I'm like, hmm, let me see. Southern California, Windsor. I don't know, Jeff. Why don't you come out here and get a taste of Kennet now? I said, yeah, for sure. That'd be awesome. Right? Because I'd never been before. So fly out there. And I was there for a week. And so he had this very detailed, stringent uh, itinerary that week. We're doing something at every block. Morning block, afternoon block, evening block. It was just very, very detailed to just pack as much in as he could. Uh, but there's one particular block midweek in the Wednesday morning where he's like, you know what, I, I, I have some personal errands I got to run with my mom and stuff, and uh, you can't tag along. So I feel kind of bad because I don't know what, to, I don't want you just watching TV this whole time. I say, you know what, Jeff? No, no. Take me downtown, drop me off downtown Pasadena, right? And then I'll just walk around for what do we, you need, what, four hours? I'll just walk around for four hours. He's like, really? Like, yeah, I love doing that. Because you know what? You go to a new city, a brand new city, you've never been, you go to the heart of that city, right? The business hub, the heart of that city, and you just take it all in. The sights and the sounds and the locals. And you sit down on the bench and you kind of look at the locals as they walk by. Not too hard, because then, you know, they might get creeped out. So you try and make it nonchalant kind of thing, right? And just do that. It's fun. He's like, okay. Drop me off and off I went. Now, the thing is, when you go to a new city you've never been, a different country, U.S., uh, and you walk around and you're going down, left down this street, right down this street, left, left, right, right, left. You know, you, there's a possibility that you might get lost. And this is pre-GPS days. Right now, it's not an issue. But back then, it was an issue. And so you walk, and, and, and you walk, 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 and, and you try and kind of keep mental count, but, you know, you just get enthralled and stuff, and it's easy to lose your track. And in Pasadena, if you've ever been, a lot of the streets are in Spanish, and I don't speak a lick of Spanish, right? So you're going left down Vista de la Nueva and right down Alhambra, and it's like, oh, is that left, left, right, or right, left? And so there's this possibility that I could get lost in the U.S., in this different city. But here's the thing. There's this big mountain range that you can see. And on top of this big mountain range was this mega church, Lake Avenue Congregational Church, which at that time was close to 10,000 people. So mega church on a mountain range. And on top of this mega church on the mountain range was this huge white cross. And that was my bearing. 
So I could walk and walk and stop and walk and stare and walk some more. And then I'd go, okay, let me just take stock. Where am I? I was like, uh, oh, oh, okay, there's the cross. I know where I am. So it was great. I could just walk. And I didn't have to keep track of Vista Della Nueva and all this stuff. I could just walk, walk, walk. And then eventually, you know, it's like, oh, time's getting away. I got to meet Jeff again. And so, okay, where's, where's the cross? It's, uh, oh, oh, it's right there. And as long as I knew where I stood in relation to that cross, I was safe. I was found. I was not lost. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where do you stand in relation to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's first order. You have to repent and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, maybe you're saying, oh, yeah, I did that five years ago, 15 years ago, 35 years ago. Okay. Who has first place? Who has first place right now in your life? Because if you've taken the reins, then you have to repent and give the reins back to the Lord Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have first place. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we bow in your presence thanking you that you so loved us that you sent Jesus into this world to die on the cross for our sins. We're not worthy of this, but because you are love, you chose to do this uh, and to bring glory to yourself by bringing us to faith in Jesus. Father, I want to pray for any here who have yet to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May your spirit continue to prompt them, speak to them, convict them of their sin, that they might and open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, that they might see Jesus for who he truly is and repent and receive him as Lord. For those, Lord, who, who, who have done that and have been baptized even, Lord, that, but they have taken the reins of their life, would you convict them in that regard? And would you uh, bring them to repentance and take the reins of their life? And as you do that, would you bring increasing glory to yourself through them, through their life? And may you be honored by all that... Uh, that takes place in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.